Friday, and I add my welcome uh, to that of Abe's. It's uh, good to be with you tonight. We are looking through uh, this letter of James, a very practical letter, uh, originally written to first century Christians about what it looked like to follow Jesus in the day-to-day, on-the-ground kind of thing. And one of the themes of the letter has been the idea of seeking heavenly wisdom, God's wisdom. And today, James presents us with a kind of a big picture framework about how we are to think and live wisely in the present uh, in light of the future. And we see this time and time again in scriptures, the idea that uh, how you think about the future affects how you think about the present and how you live in the present. So what we're going to be thinking about in this section today, looking at James uh, chapter 4, we're going to go a bit further uh, than the passage that was read. We're going to go to the end, uh, to verse 12 of uh, chapter 5. And the question of how do you live wisely in the present in light of the future, uh, James gives us three answers. To be wise in the present is to know the uncertainty of our future. To be wise in the present is to know the certainty of our future. So there's a bit of a surprise. And the third is to be wise in the present is to cultivate a patient heart. So first of all, to be wise in the present is to know the uncertainty of our future. The first thing we see is to, to be wise in the present is to know this thing, the reality that the future is uncertain. And what he does is... He begins by addressing a particular kind of person with a particular kind of attitude and outlook on life. We see there in uh, verse 13 of chapter 4, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Now I think we can relate to this, can't we? We can relate to this kind of way of thinking, this kind of way of speaking. We all know what it's like to book a holiday in advance to make plans for family, job, work, our lives. What is the problem that uh, James is addressing? Well, the problem isn't in the making of plans, but the heart attitude behind those plans. Uh, When we speak with such confidence about the future uh, and our plans, we speak as if the future is in our hands and it is determined by our ability to plan. So, you know... You know, the the whole mantra, failure to plan is planning to fail and those kind of things. Well, James is actually challenging a misplaced confidence that's in ourselves and an ignorance and a naivety about who is actually in control of the future. See there in verse 14, it's quite a stark reality. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. You're like smoke that appears for a little while, then vanishes. So in contrast to the kind of description of, you know, the ancient equivalent of the jet-setting venture capitalist, he kind of, James describes the reality of the life of, like, the ancient equivalent of, like, you know, maybe the Rupert Murdoch or the Steve Jobs, saying, you're a smoke that disappears, that appears for a little while, then vanishes. It's kind of like the early morning fog. By midday, you've forgotten about it, it's gone away. Oh, yeah, that's right, it was a bit foggy this morning. Those great and successful people in their own eyes, actually, they're just like a little mist comes up, it vanishes. You don't know when your life is going to be taken from you. You can be someone who's dedicated to health and fitness regimes and find yourself attending a music festival in Israel on October the 7th, and that's that. 
You don't know when your life is going to be taken from you. Speaking with such confidence about how a future is going to play out, it's not only naive, but it's incredibly arrogant. See there in verse 16, but as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. It's actually arrogant because it's living as if God is not in control of the future. Well, then what does wise living look like? Well, James provides a simple alternative, verse 15. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, it doesn't seem that James is prescribing some kind of mantra that Christians should say about every time they talk about the future or their intentions. Lord willing, I'll have breakfast tomorrow. Lord willing, I'll have lunch. Lord willing, you know, that kind of thing. You don't, we don't want to, you know, you know what it's like when people can be a bit like, almost super spiritual about saying, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. But that said, that habit can actually be a really helpful re- <laughs> recasting. We've learned how the way that we speak reflects our heart and the way that we speak can also direct and shape our heart. Now, what James is, he's actually directing us not to abandon thinking about what we might do tomorrow, He's not telling us not calling us to abandon what we might do. In fact, we see in verse 17, he describes that it's actually sinful to not do what a person knows is a good thing to do. See there, verse 17? So it is a sin for the person who knows to do what is good and doesn't do it. So he's not anti-planning. He's not anti-intentionality. In fact, he's saying being passive and doing nothing in the present can at times be described as sin so what is he directing us to it's an attitude and an awareness about all of life and particularly here the future that everything is in God's hands not ours Um, I remember when I first learnt to to drive and got my L's it was interesting, I remember the first thing my dad told me um, when I got into the car, and it was very helpful for me, it stuck with me, uh, all right, he said, he, he said, son, no, he said, son, Luke, he said, Luke, can't remember what he said actually, <laughs> Luke, son, anyway, but no, he did say, and it was very helpful for me, when I got in the car before my very first lesson, he said, remember what you are handling right now is a lethal weapon, right? Now, he didn't say that to freak me out or scare me, but he actually, it was such a helpful perspective that I've never forgotten that every time I get into a car, I'm aware of the power of the car, the consequences, the vulnerability of being on the road, not to kid myself that I can just turn around and think that there's no consequences. In a similar way, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When we approach life each day, It's in God's hands. Remember, it's in God's hands, not ours. Tomorrow's in God's hands, not ours. Our ability to predict and control and know the future has not progressed the way that we might think science has progressed, you know, and you might think that science can explain all these kind of things. If you think about the COVID pandemic, the end of 2019, most Australians thought that the bushfires across our nation would be the most significant national event on our national conscience for many years, but only within a few months, it was suddenly, it was all about lockdowns. You know, it's interesting, we're thinking about, you know, 
in, I think it was like October, November, December of 2019-2020, there was this idea of government orders to evacuate communities. Remember that? Get out. Leave your home. It's not safe to stay. Go, get away. Then a couple of months later, no, don't leave your home. Right? Don't go out anywhere. Who would have thought, right? It's like the whole world at that time was being taught. You really can't control the future. If you think you're a celebrity and you can make this movie this year, think again. If you think you're the president and you're not going to get COVID, think again. Right? It's the ability to control the future. The whole world got a wake-up call that we can't do it the way that we think we can. So to be wise in the present is to know the uncertainty of the future, but to, to be wise in the present, our second point, is to know the certainty of the future. And what he wants to do here, James, is to particularly, he wants to signal out the rich. He picks this up in chapter 5, verse 1. Now, whether you consider yourself rich by the standards that you might set yourself, uh, in terms of globally and historically, we are incredibly rich by pretty much every metric, every raw metric. We have more so-called autonomy over our lives, our decisions, our agency, our circumstances than any other human being that's ever lived in history. Even the very concept of job choice or career choice, it's a very recent modern novelty, right? He's addressing the rich, and I think that includes us. Verse 1, come now, you rich people. And he goes on to describe a future, particularly in regards to wealth and riches. And perhaps surprisingly, in light of what we've just seen, instead of saying, come now, you rich people, you don't know what tomorrow will bring, here James says with confidence what the future will bring. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth is ruined, your clothes are moth-eaten, your silver and gold are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've stored up treasure in the last days. He's describing a pretty bleak future of misery, suffering and pain for the rich where material and earthly possessions have become worthless, even the precious metals like gold and silver, which many still consider as really a kind of a stable investment in times of economic uncertainty, they've corroded and they testify against the rich. He describes this accountability that's going to come for this life that's been lived in indulgence, greed, injustice. You see the words there in verse 3, the last days... The last days, it reflects a particular perspective on history that the rich uh, person in this passage do not have. There's a certain end towards which everything is heading. Things are not going to go on like this forever. These are final days before the whistle of history is going to blow, call time on life as we know it. There's going to be accountability. And James condemns the rich for the way that they have spent these last days, storing up treasures that are soon to become worthless. They're fools. Imagine if you knew with certainty that in a month's time, all the shares in BHP, or whatever it is, are going to become totally worthless, right? And the 
stock market's going to crash? Now, what kind of person, knowing with certainty that that's going to happen, would then spend the next month buying up as many shares in BHP as possible? Why would you do that? It'd be the highest price. If you knew with certainty that, 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 that in a month's time it's going to go, they're going to be worthless, why would you do that? Now, you know, insider trading regulations aside, hypothetically speaking, shouldn't you be selling all your BHP shares or whatever it is, or at least doing everything in your power to prepare yourself and others for this crash? Why would you spend the 30 days, let's say, investing in the very thing that's going to become worthless? But this is the seduction, the deception, and the corruption that wealth and riches have on our lives. The lies that, that we can start believing in these promises that they offer us. We see there in verse 4, there's a description of the kind of corruption that happens. There's an unjust business owner, a landowner, who has not paid his workers. There, verse 4, look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reap your field cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Now, James could have had in mind literal examples of these rich landowners who have, in the words of verse 5, literally lived luxuriously on the land and indulged themselves. But it seems he's making a bigger point, addressing that idea of corruption and self-indulgence. He's describing there's kind of this irony and ironic kind of foolishness for the person who has lived their life thinking they're in charge, that the world exists for them, they're unaccountable, they're the one, and they've kind of they've kind of indulged in all this stuff. And he gives this description at the end of verse 5, you fatten your heart for the day of slaughter. You think, <laughs> the more that you think you're feeding yourself, you're actually fattening yourself up to be slaughtered. It's very bleak, isn't it? Now, to round off this description, he just, he just kind of describes how dark uh, the seduction of earthly riches is, how it can even drive people to murder the innocent. I think it brings to mind the way Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The righteous one, Jesus. The foolishness of the rich described in this passage is that they're living in this kind of arrogance. Arrogance and ignorance of the certainty of the Lord's coming. So they, they, they kind of think they can control the future, but they're completely ignorant of the certainty of his coming, the certainty of judgment, the certainty of accountability, the certainty of justice. In the previous passage, it was kind of the misplaced confidence in the future. Here, it's the willful denial about what is certain about the future. There will be a day where we will all stand before our Lord and give account for our lives. So we have seen that to live wisely in the present means, on the one hand, knowing the uncertainty of the future. We don't know how long our lives are. We are not in control. God is. Our lives are like a puff of smoke here one day, gone the next. But we've also seen that to be wise in the present means knowing what is certain about our future. The Lord is returning. And where we stand with him and where we're going to spend eternity really does matter. We are accountable for what we invest in. 
treasures we're seeking, there is a huge difference between living like, like the future of our, is ours to write and, or the future is God's to write. Which brings us to the third answer that James gives as to how we are to live wisely in the present in light of the future, which brings together kind of these two ideas. To be wise in the present is to cultivate a patient heart. You see there in verse 7 the word therefore. James has previously provided these kind of two strong warnings. The, the person who is kind of the folly of the arrogant person who goes around saying, I'm going to do this and that, and also the person who's living for their wealth and prosperity. He now moves to the positive, what wise living looks like, rather than kind of what it doesn't look like. And we see there the key issue is patience. Verse 7, therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. And a bit more specifically in verse 8, attending to our hearts, you also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. So the shift in the language which we saw in the previous chapter, you know, you who say, you, and then kind of you rich people at the beginning of uh, this chapter, he shifts to this kind of brotherly affection, suggesting, I think, that these words here in this section, are kind of more directly addressed to James's immediate readers and probably this kind of desire to strengthen and encourage them, not to say that there weren't people like the rich and the arrogant in the community, but it seems like he's particularly getting close here to give them encouragement. And you can kind of know the experience as a Christian when you can look at the world out there, people who are not interested in God, they seem to be getting ahead. They seem to be cutting corners on their mortgage and finding a better deal or seem to be able to get their kids into better situations. There's a kind of a whole bunch of things where sometimes you can feel as a Christian, well, everyone else's lives and plans without God, well, they just seem to have, be able to invest in so much more and they've built up all these kind of things. And it's like James is speaking to the Christians after this kind of stark warning of the arrogance and the folly of that kind of living. He's kind of saying, oh, it's okay, brothers and sisters. Be patient. The Lord's got this. You don't need to freak out about where things are going, how things are going to turn out. Be patient. It's interesting that the example he gives, again, is of a farmer. He's referred to a pretty negative example in the previous one. This time he gives an example of how the rich... He, he, this time he gives... Like previous time he gave an example of how the rich have abused the harvesters. Here there's a positive example. See... How the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and late rains. It's kind of like this degree of certainty and uncertainty in farming. I don't know a lot about farming. I haven't done a lot of it myself. But there is a sense there's a predictability of the cycle of the seasons. The fact that crop, crops will grow in certain seasons and not in others. And the successful farmer won't seek to speed up time or harvest time. Or that what they try to do, the successful farmer won't kid themselves that they can control the seasons, but rather to make the most of each individual season waiting for the precious fruit. Come from waiting and investing wisely in the right season. That's the kind of patience we have on view here in light of both the uncertainty and the certainty of the future. We are not in control. God is, but there are certain things about the future. 
not a patience that goes to sleep. It's not a patience that's just like kind of being in a waiting room. Sometimes Christians are caricatured as just being told to spend their whole lives waiting for the next life, as if patience uh, and waiting is a passive activity. We know that's not the case. Waiting and patience is an acknowledgement that our main goal in the present is not to live to eradicate suffering and maximise our happiness, but to live now in light of Jesus' lordship and his return. And so James then goes to describe what it means, what it looks like to cultivate a patient heart in light of the future. And he gives a few examples, it's not exhaustive, but examples that relate to our speech, which seems like a bit of a surprising area to turn to. But we've seen a few weeks ago when we were looking at the taming of the tongue that, that our speech really matters. It actually has the ability, again, to shape who we are and reflect who we are. It can destroy communities. It can build up communities. So in light of the Lord's return, the way that we speak matters. And he gives three examples of what this patient endurance looks like in relationship to our speech. And we'll briefly have a look at these three before we finish up. So the first is, the first example is not complaining about one another he says there verse 9 do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged look the judge stands at the door now James isn't describing an important kind of complaints that Christians should make about others when especially when someone is harming somebody acting in a criminal or abusive way it's clear from the rest of the passage that Christians are called to be bold and honest in our speech But complaining here is the kind of complaining that creates a Christian community where people are putting themselves in the positions of experts on the lives of everybody else. It's like the Christian community are not living as if Jesus is really the Lord of this community. It's like a community of armchair critics, quick to speak critically of others, tear each other's down now this can be done in a whole bunch of different ways there can be the obvious complainer about other people it can be done very subtly depending on how good we are depending on our personality we can complain about others by casually letting somebody know with a kind of plausible deniability the repeated failings of another person and build up a loyal team of supporters who'll think very positively of us and very negatively of somebody else that kind of cumulative way of complaining and tearing down another person But the person who is seeking to cultivate a patient heart in light of the Lord's coming will not just on the surface say nice words about people, but will do everything and resist everything that might breed a culture of complaint and division. Second, speaking in the name of the Lord is the second example of cultivating a patient heart, the courage to speak in the name of the Lord. See there, verse 10. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now, speaking up for the truth, the lordship of Jesus, his return, and how we are accountable to him. And we will all one day stand 
before him to do this kind of speech, it's rarely popular. Rarely popular. The more we speak up about this, the more Christians over history have been martyred for doing these kind of things. But waiting patiently for the Lord, perhaps counterintuitively, involves a courageous and confident speech. Speaking of the Lord in the last days while there is still time. Now the motivation to do this, uh, despite uh, the suffering and the rejection that might come from those around us, is not just the fact that there is judgment to come, that we'll all stand before our maker and judge on the final day. That should be enough motivation to speak the truth of the Lord with boldness. But the other motivation is just fantastic. It's just unbelievable. See there, verse 11. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. That is, we speak with boldness and courage in the name of the Lord in these last days because we know that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful and desires that everyone, everywhere, will turn back to him and accept the forgiveness he offers to spend eternity in his presence. Patient endurance looks like bold, courageous speech in the name of the Lord, speaking of the certainties of who he is, what he has done, and what he offers on the final future return. Third and finally, we'll finish up with these, uh, this reflection. We've been doing some patient endurance tonight, haven't we, Pete, in this longer, longer message, but this is a, this is a test, eh? No. Third one. Honest speech, right? Honest speech and not making oaths. See there in verse 12. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. Your yes must be yes and your no must be no so that you won't fall under judgment. Now, it can be a bit tricky, I think, to get a sense of the backdrop of this particular verse. It doesn't seem like it's a blanket command to never make an oath as kind of part of respecting our legal system and the, the requirements of the government. So some people might say, well, I'm never allowed to make an oath. I don't think it seem, seems to be what is on view here. What seems to be on view is talking about the way in which we speak. There's a kind of a power in our words and we can use the power of oaths or swearing by different things to kind of manipulate our relationships, our conversations, manipulate people and get our way rather than simply relying on the integrity of our character and the trustworthiness of our words. You know, you can hear those examples when people go, I swear, I swear on my life, I swear on my daughter's life, it never happened. You know, there's this kind of sense in which when we suddenly really wish that people really, really believed us, we kind of have to amp up our language for whatever reason we need to be more tr seen as more trustworthy now than normal but James is saying no no that's not how it's to be for you be people whose yes is yes and no is no there can be a Christian version of this kind of oath making I think that's why he talks about heaven swearing on heaven whether consciously or subconsciously we can seek to give our words a little bit more gravity so that when we're in a conversation with other people, our words can just have a little bit of a, a weight that other people's words don't have when we say things like, well, God has put this on my heart that we really should do that. 
And everyone else in the room goes, well, who am I to argue with God, right? You know that way? We can actually do that quite subtly. That we can actually invoke the name of the heaven or invoke the name of God. And as we do this, we're controlling the environment. We're controlling the outcome. Sometimes if we want to avoid a difficult situation, someone might say, hey, why are you, you know, why are you thinking of leaving church? You know, to avoid that difficult discussion, you might say, I just feel that God is leading me to do this. Well, who am I to question God, right? It can often be a habit in Christian communities in order to avoid truth, hearing difficult things, seeking righteousness, we can get into habits of using our speech in a way that will control the outcome. And we can do it often by Christianizing our speech. So someone's speech has got to be more Christian than the other person's and whoever has the most Christianized speech has control. Now, for the person who knows the one whose opinion matters the most is our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, we don't need to make oaths. We don't need to bolster our speech to give it more weight. We can simply be people of integrity and honesty. It doesn't mean we have to be blunt and brutal with our honesty. We can speak the truth in love, so be careful and thoughtful about when we say certain things and when we don't say certain things. The point here is not trying to give our speech more power and cut through, but to be people of trustworthiness whose patience patient heart comes and has been cultivated by living in light of the Lord's return, the Lordship of Jesus, his control, not ours. We have covered a lot tonight and um, I'm not sure the screen did, the screen hasn't been working, I assume still, yeah, it was meant to be a lot easier, you would have had a lot more to see and you know, know, there's been amazing pictures there that you've all missed, no that hasn't been amazing.